This is Al White, Chief Test Pilot of North American Aviation during the XB-70 program, and you're listening to Dr. Sky. I'm Steve Cates, Dr. Sky. Welcome to another exciting edition of the Dr. Sky Show, heard each week exclusively on teentalknetwork.com. And today, we're speaking about aviation history during the 1960s with a very important guest, Al White, the Chief Test Pilot for North American Aviation and the famous Valkyrie Bombers known as the B-70. Speaking about details about the aircraft, the XB-70, as you know, Al, the wingspan, 105 feet, the length of this aircraft, 194 feet, a height from the ground uh, surface to the top is 30 feet, a wing area of some 6,297 square feet and a weight of 550,000 pounds, and as you know so appropriate, sir, the Mach 3 capability at an altitude, uh, surf ceiling altitude of at least 70,000 feet. The thing, the thing that I guess bothered a lot of people was that that it took off, it came off the ground at a very high, uh, that nose high attitude, and then as it climbed out, it got even higher. And there were some comments about it uh, afterwards, but we had seen in the simulator that. Uh, an 18 degree pitch attitude would hold us at 220 knots on the climb out and the gear limit speed was 250 knots so I didn't want to exceed that until I got up and got stabilized and then raised the gear or tried to raise the gear so I just had with all the afterburners going I had to hold the nose up to keep the 220 knots that's amazing stuff. But that's, that's typical of Delta Wing airplanes. I can imagine, especially something that's more than a half a million pounds. <laughs> but when you left Edwards Air Force Base, I'm looking in uh, Jenkins' book. It looks like you tracked out a whole big path around the western United States to do these test flights. So this wasn't just locally. You went all the way up where? To Idaho and Utah and Arizona? We and actually, we actually went, flew through nine states uh, as, as our as our flight test area expanded and we went faster and faster you know you you don't take off and go right to Mach 3 you got to work up and we did stability and control and some flutter tests and a lot of uh, inlet after we got to Mach 2 we had to check those inlets out I guess I should explain that the inlet duct on the B-70 and also on the SR-71 um, create shock waves in the, in the duct, and the reason for that is that when you get up real high, the, the air is very thin, and you're going real fast. Okay, but you don't want that air going into the engines at Mach three, and you don't want if you could if you could have sea level pressure air up there, you'd have a lot better performance. What are we, about 70,000 feet you're talking Yeah, about? we're 70 to 72,000. It's very high. So the, the theory is, and I hope I'm not getting too out of line here. No, 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 please. I want to hear your story. We're, we're honoring your time and, and what you've done here. So. The theory is, and it's true, that as the air goes across the shock wave, it, the pressure builds up right behind the shock wave, and the air slows down a little bit. And shockwaves bounce. Uh, if it hits a wall, it bounces off, and it 
Of course, it slowed down a little bit. And the other feature of a shockwave is any time you change the direction of the air, you create a shockwave. So what the inlet duct did was about Mach 2, it captured the the primary shockwave, and that bounced down the inlet. And then as we went faster, we had translating walls in the inside of the inlet, and so we changed the made it curvature, and so that created more shock waves. end result being that the air going into the engines was only 600 miles an hour, but the pressure was 30 times greater than it was outside the airplane. So what <clears throat> what that means is that we're flying at 70,000 feet with sea level pressure air and subsonic air going into the, air, into the engine, and although the airplane's flying at 2,000 miles an hour. Well, great innovative thing in those high-speed airplanes. So this aircraft was way ahead of its time, not only in looks, and when it's standing still, it looks like it's moving to me. It's just uh, something that people need to know about. Well, it's it's unique, that's for sure. If I may uh, just move forward with a couple of things on this area. You flew through nine states. That's amazing. But what's the feeling? Tell me from the heart. What's the feeling like to go to these speeds in this time era, the 1960s, what's it like to go Mach 3? Well, it's funny. People people want to know what it feels like to go that fast. And up there, unless there's a cloud deck or something nearby that you go by, uh, you don't get any sensation of speed. The sensation that you get, there's two things that are different. One is that you're traveling about 33 miles a minute, so when you, when all we had was one TACAN set to navigate with, and it seemed like that by the time I got the TACAN tuned in for the next station, the needle was pointing to the tail. We'd already gone by it. Um, you just, you just can't. Uh, it's hard to adapt yourself to the to the fact that you're traveling over the ground that fast. You know. It's just if you if you think about the stations you're going by and how quickly they go by, that's the sensation of speed that you get. The other thing is that um, the radius of turn at a 20-degree bank at Mach 3, the radius of turn is about 150 miles. I'm reading here, and I quote, it says at Mach 3, Mach 3 it took the aircraft an arc of 287 miles and 13 minutes to make a 180-degree turn. That's, that's right. right. Yeah. That's don't, amazing. You don't turn very fast. I we, had, we were being tracked by radar, of course, from all the radar stations around the country, but and they were tied through in a hotline to our our people at Edwards Air Force Base, and one of the guys said to me, they said, Al, turn, turn, you're going... <laughs> I said, I'm turning. <laughs> it takes a long time to turn. Yeah, I just don't realize how, how how slow it is. And, you know, when you think about it, um, if you consider the pitch attitude, this is one of the problems we had for a while, that if you have a one-degree error in pitch attitude and one-degree on the on the pitch attitude indicator that you're flying with is about the width of a narrow pencil line, okay? 
but one degree pitch attitude error gives you a 3,000 feet per minute change of altitude. That's a big difference. So if you don't catch it, you find yourself going down. And up there where they where the the air pressures change as you're going along and you're going through these different pressures, the the rate of climb insert and the altimeter are running up and down. And if you start chasing them, you're going to be out of your envelope real quick. But think about in in terms of rate of turn, that same one degree uh, error in hitting is, is taking you off your track at a half a mile a minute. You it's know, fast. So it's um, it, we didn't have autopilots; it was all hand flown. So. Well, I'm going to move on to something here, and I'm going to ask these questions with absolute respect and, of course, no other way, and, of course, to the memory of Colonel Cotton. What you're about to hear, ladies and gentlemen, is a most amazing story. On June the 8th, 1966, Al, you lived this, and I would love you if you could just tell us uh, exactly the story. You survived this most amazing and sad crash uh, of aircraft, of your craft, with this particular uh, photo opportunity with some General Electric aircraft. I mean, to this day, I think it's so amazing to hear a story like this. Uh, Not only did you hit the ground, as you know, with this most incredible G-force. Tell us a little bit about that whole event. Uh, And again, I want to keep this in all due respect to the memory of Colonel Cotton. I have to correct one thing you have, that Colonel Cotton wasn't with me that day. So, Oh, I'm sorry. It was was another man who... Uh, Major Carl Cross who was sorry. riding in the right seat, and he had never been in the airplane before. But the theory was that we had already done all of the milestones of of the program. We had reached Mach three. We had reached. We flew at Mach three for over 30 minutes, and the reason for that was that the requirement was that if we kept it at Mach three or above for 30 minutes, that all of the temperatures would have stabilized. And that would have been proof that uh, that those systems could work in that heat environment. We had done all that, and then the, the Air Force and NASA decided to check a couple of more pilots out. Major Carl Cross was one of them. Uh, Joe Walker, the chief pilot for NASA, Dryden, was the other one. And uh, this uh, Fitz Fulton was going to fly with Major Cross, and they were going to do a Oh, I don't know, an airspeed calibration and uh, some sonic boom runs to measure the the intensity of the boom and some of that. Yeah, but it was kind of a milk run, so it was a good time to give an indoctrination ride to one of these pilots that was going to check out in the airplane. And then, of course, General Electric um, requested that they get these um, publicity pictures with these five airplanes in formation that all had General Electric engines in them. And unfortunately, uh, well, there was Cotton and I think a Captain Hogue, I think, was the fly on the uh, T-38. And uh, uh, Navy, I think I think he was Lieutenant Commander Skyrude was flying the F-4. Joe Walker was flying the 104, and uh, 
Oh, John Fritz was flying another airplane. I think the F-5, maybe. Right, all these planes together. Yeah, and we were flying in formation, just very simply going around a racetrack pattern. And I guess Walker decided to take a look at something, and he moved forward. And we don't know. We don't know what really happened. It's never been determined. But it appeared to me from the pictures that his his tailplane in the 104 he had a T-tail that, that horizontal was on top of the vertical. Yes, it's a smaller. So vertical. it was about eight feet above his head and about forty some feet behind him. And the wingtips of the B-70 were turned down halfway, so that was a that was probably a twelve feet. So that says if he got up when where he was looking at a level part of the wing back there, forty feet behind him, uh, if he was twenty feet from the below the wing back there they came together and that's what happened he he for some reason pulled up and the t-tail hit the bottom of the wingtip and it knocked his tail off and he pitched up over the airplane and then he wiped off our our verticals so we lost he was killed immediately and of course the airplane was destroyed and we went along for a little bit but then the airplane went out of control and started to break up. I um, I had been told that Carl Cross, um, the reason Fitz wasn't flying with him was he had a he had a conflicting assignment, and they had called me the night before and asked me to come up and take the flight. Um, so I had been told that he had a full briefing on the escape system. So when we we went out of control, uh, Cotton was yelling at us to bail out, and uh, the bailout was a two-stage system. You you pulled one handle and it encapsulated you. It, it blew some charges that forced you back into the capsule and pulled up all your tightened all your straps and stowed the control wheel forward into the panel and. The system was that if after the, the, the clamshell doors on the capsule closed, that the auto, it automatically the the, the uh, communication system automatically went to a hot mic so that we could talk back and forth, even though we couldn't reach the mic button up on the wheel because it was sewed. Well, I unfortunately the the wing came off the airplane and we were thrashing around pretty bad and. Uh, when I closed the capsule, it caught my arm outside, so the capsule never got closed. And I was having a hard time trying to get my arm out of it, and, and I could see Carl over there with his head bobbing around. But the, the end result was I finally got my arm out, and I got out of the airplane fairly late, and he he never did. He He never, ever encapsulated. He never went through the first step of the two-step system. And my problem was that when I came out of the airplane, the, the capsule doors were still open. There so you punched out of this aircraft. Pardon? With the, you punched out of this aircraft without the capsulation completed. Well, I was. I, the, the doors weren't closed. I was in the capsule, but the doors, they were big clamshell doors, and they had to come closed. And on the bottom, underneath the bottom door, there was a what they call an impact attenuator, a blow-up bag. 
that had blowout patches in it, which reduced the the landing shock. The, the, the capsule with a man in it weighed about a thousand pounds, and the, the parachutes were in a very small compartment, and they had to be refrigerated to keep them from melting at Mach three. So they they were they let the capsule down pretty fast, and they were depending on the impact attenuator to cushion the shock. But with the door open, the impact attenuator never had a chance to open, so I hit the ground pretty hard. I, I can say, I mean, if this is an accurate statement, uh, some 44 Gs, if that's correct? Well, 44 Gs is what they estimated that the capsule sustained. But I busted all the, um, the, the seat broke loose inside the capsule, which attenuated the shock on my back to something like 33 Gs which is still a pretty healthy load. That's incredible. I mean, what you're hearing, ladies and gentlemen, is, is the most amazing story. And, again, I stand corrected, uh, Al. Major, the memory of Major Call Cross is what we're talking about here. Yeah. And I want to stand corrected that I did have the uh, names from, but there's so many individuals involved in the story. But this ship, 62207, is lost uh, just outside of Barstow. And you sustained injuries. Is, is this also true? Yeah, I was um, on a critical list for a little while. It uh, it never broke anything, although I'm finding now <laughs> that some of the some of the pads between the vertebrae of my back are, are nothing but mush. Well, but, but uh, I'm amazed that in all due respect, I didn't have any broken bones, but it just uh, it bruised up my internal organs pretty bad, and it was a while before I could get that squared away. Well, by an act of God, I mean, I would imagine uh, this is the most incredible impact, I think, that any human being has survived. Plus, uh, well, remember, it was a calculation. We didn't have a G-meter on it. That's amazing. But it's the hardest thing I ever took, I'll tell you that. Oh, well, God bless you. I mean, uh, just hearing this story, folks, is just amazing. And as we're talking today, in case you're joining us as we reach the uh, end point of our time today with North American's chief test pilot, Al White, talking to us on this most amazing story about the XB-70, his time flying this aircraft through Mach 2, Mach 3, all through the 1960s, and this tragic event of June 8, 1966. But on a very positive note, Al, as we kind of conclude this, what do you think is the summary? What 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 can we learn from the B-70? And tell us a little bit briefly about the folks that may not have gotten all the credit uh, that they deserve from North American Aviation. Well, I you know I I would I resent the fact that the that the designers and that the manufacturing people and the maintenance people, the engineering people, never seem to get you never. <laughs> They're not the heroes. They always pick on the pilots. And it really is a team effort. You know, it's everybody. So what What I think, because the airplane never went into production, it flew as a research airplane. And I'm sure there's a lot of, of information and data that came out of that that, can, that has been used on uh Subsequent airplanes and some on the uh, Apollo capsule, I'm told. Uh, some of the manufacturing techniques were used in that. But one of the things that that's always that doesn't bother me, but it's it's two ways of looking at something. They, some of the Air Force people looked at this as a 
like they, when they evaluate an airplane, they're evaluating an airplane that's going into production, and they're or their representatives of the pilots in the using agencies, and so they they concentrate lots of times on trying to do the the smaller things that you know, like the, the airplane should have had a uh, some return springs in the brakes, and it should have had this and that and the other thing, but in a research vehicle that that cost as much to fly as that airplane did uh, there are certain things that you have to give up you have to just do the research get the research data and then if it goes into production then you got to go back and clean up some of the smaller things like the hydraulic system in the airplane it failed us on several occasions but we you know we patched it up and went on yes where if the airplane went into production you would you would probably redo it. We would have done, redone a lot of things. We had one flight characteristic in the airplane that you had to get used to, and uh, I, I don't want to get too complicated in explaining it. But if that airplane had gone into production, we there were ways of taking care of that. Sure, we didn't have the time to do it. <laughs> we were we were on a time schedule, and we were doing one thing, and that was to get this airplane show that this airplane, the biggest airplane as it was, could fly at Mach 3 for extended range. really don't want to have to end this interview, but I'm hoping that in the future we may be able to do something in addition to this. But I want to remind the listeners that the surviving XB-70, ship 62-001, is now on permanent display at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where it remains as one of the great aircraft in American history. And I want to thank you, sir, for spending the moments with us today on uh, Teen Talk Network and our flagship radio station, News Talk 1100 KFNX, to talk about this most amazing Valkyrie bomber. And you yourself, sir, flew it. You know every square inch of this airplane, and you knew exactly how to fly that airplane. You kind of told us before that you uh, kind of got into your own environment there once you spent all that time in flying to Mach 3. We want to salute you and all the folks at North American Aviation the things that they may not necessarily have been uh, been told, that is, the public, about this aircraft, and reminding the listeners to get a copy of this book by Dennis R. Jenkins entitled Valkyrie, North American's Mach 3 Super Bomber by Specialty Press. You'll see the links on our website. Al White, any last comment uh, about this time that you spent uh, in no. summary with the B-70? Thank you for giving me the chance to talk about this airplane and, and also about all the wonderful people that did so much to um, make it possible. Well, White, it's an amazing story, and you're an American hero in my book. Uh, I want to thank you for your dedication to the story of flight mm. from the Wright brothers to the XB-70 to the present uh, B-2 bombers and all the other technology in manned space flight. That concludes another exciting edition of the Dr. Sky Show, heard weekly on TeenTalkNetwork.com and on our flagship radio station, the 50,000-watt powerhouse of the desert southwest, KFNX, News Talk Radio 1100, where Dr. Sky always reminds you to keep your eyes to the skies. Al White, thank you for thank being you, an American Steve. aviation hero. Thank you.